0: Типа. A year after the Sheraton move rocked the nation, another ugly episode of defecting politicians has surfaced. At least two MPs from PKR and six Assemblymen from Warisan are rumoured to be switching support to the ruling PN government. As Malaysians, I think it's safe to say that we're all tired of politicking in our beloved nation. Every move that has been made is seemingly with some kind of agenda. Mm. When can we expect a change in policy to ensure that Malaysian voters are not once again a victim to party hopping?
1: It's not- not a matter of when; it's a matter of will they enact. Whether or not there is a willingness for the government to enact this law that might not necessarily serve their best interests. So when we talk about ever since the Sheraton move, there have been talks about this anti-party hopping or party jumping law being enacted among politicians, among parliament members, among you know analysts. There have been talk about this law being enacted, but so far they're all talks. So at the same time, the government is saying that every citizen has the right to freedom association based. article 10 of the federal constitution right so with this right they are also given the right to disassociate so to curb this lawyers and legislatures are talking about putting like a clause or a limited anti-party hopping act or law to curb this phenomenon so first they are saying either a limited until they can exploit whether to outlaw party hopping for good or a clause that will result in defectors to lose his or her seat if they decide to resign from a party right at the same time we are also saying that if you could have a law that would probably allow for a recall of election so those are some of the ways that lawyers are looking at this issue what we are saying that we could amend this laws, but these are big changes to the government that Especially under the emergency ordinance right now, the Mm. government is not ready to take on. So I think what people don't necessarily understand is, you know, parting hopping not only makes people lose faith for the government, it underlies the corruption that is going on, you know, underneath that people might not be aware of. So we have the Corruption Perception Index earlier by Transparency International saying that MPs are one of the groups that are responsible for corruption in Malaysia. So this fact just strengthened it. So Mm -hmm. there you are, you know, the people at this point in time, I think the people are just tired of not really having control over what the government is doing, not Mm -hmm. not really having control over who decides on where the government is heading. We've seen, you know, the impacts of the Sabah election. We don't want that to happen again.
2: But the people did come together, though. I mean, like, at some point, especially during COVID, everybody needs to come together for follow all the SOPs and whatnot. Now... Mm -hmm. COVID vaccines are coming in already. When it comes to the Malaysian workforce, who should get the COVID vaccine first? That's the next question. Should it be low-paid workers or those in the middle to upper income bracket? And why, Farhana, why?
1: Yeah, there's way too much, you know, for me to cover with regards to this issue. So we'll talk about it next. public.
0: <laughs> policy analysts believe there is a case for low-paid workers to be prioritized for the third phase of the national COVID-19 immunization program right. over concerns that uneven vaccination rates across the population could widen existing socioeconomic gaps. Right. There does seem to be a huge disparity in this immunization plan for those in the lower income brackets as it's yet to be determined who should get the next phase of the vaccine. In your opinion, how has this been addressed?
1: Okay, so I think the government has outlined you know, phase one, phase two and phase three Yes of the COVID-19 immunization program. So we have phase one for healthcare professionals, you know, that is, you know, and other frontline workers, that is undisputed. I think other countries implement the same thing. I think they are at the front lines, they should get it first. For phase two, currently we are targeting um, elderly, the elderly aged six years and above, (laughs) and also people with chronic diseases. So I think there is room for us to include vulnerable groups. So when we say vulnerable groups, they are the ones that have contributed, I guess for most of the classes here in Malaysia, migrant workers, we are talking about detainees, we're talking about factory or essential services staff. So these are people who are vulnerable because of the nature of their job. And then we're also looking at vulnerable communities. So vulnerable communities are those probably you know living at low cost housing either in urban areas or even people who are living in long houses in rural areas for example. So these are vulnerable communities because, A, they lack the access or even the space to be exposed to the COVID-19 virus. They don't have enough information about the vaccine. You know, they are in a remote and rural area or where access is quite limited. Right. So the government has done their earlier assessment in terms of who needs to be in phase one, phase two, phase three. But I think there need to be a more thorough assessment on what goes into each phases. So we see a problem before with undocumented migrants. They're not sure where we should put this group, uh, whether they belong in the first phase or whether they belong in the second phase or the third phase. And then somehow, one way or another, this has been cleared up by Dijin Sham suddenly said that, oh, maybe they don't even need to be vaccinated at all. So that's a, you know, misinspiration. I think partly because there hasn't been a clear sort of guideline or phases when it comes to all this. So basically so, the phases are
2: too vague, you're saying?
1: No, there isn't a clear outline. Right, right. When it comes to, you know, what goes into phase one, phase two, phase three. Mm. So I think there is room For them to include More people And they need to Include them For earlier Vaccination drives I feel So yeah
2: Because they're more Exposed to dangerous Living Yeah
1: Because Mm. we've seen Most of the people That are in these Vulnerable communities Are the ones Who are exposed To COVID-19 before And are the ones Who are contributing To the clusters Correct So Mm. if we want To reach herd immunity These are the people That we need to target You know It's not people Like you and me Who sit at home And you know Can't afford To take care of ourselves Correct It's people who Have to go out Every day Be in an environment Where they can't social distance, be in an environment where they are very much exposed to the virus, to one another. So they need to get vaccinated and they need to be included in the earlier vaccination drives, I feel.
2: Alright, Now that we know how you feel about the COVID vaccine, we want to know how you feel about our EPF contributions, Farana. Are you okay. happy with how they've managed your money?
1: I'm guessing this is with regards to the new EPF announcement.
2: Exactly. Let's talk <laughs> okay. a bit about that in a bit because okay. it looks like our contributions have paid off. We're getting dividends, but I thought times were kind of tough. How is all this possible? We're going to discuss this next.
0: The EPF is expected to announce encouraging dividend rates for 2020. It is understood that the board has approved a dividend of between 5% and 5.3% for conventional accounts and between 4.8 to 5% for Sharia. This is even higher than Amana Saham National Bahud's 4.25%. Yes. sounds like great news for EPF contributors. Yay! Despite all the economic uncertainty, though, how is this even possible?
1: First, I think it. Boils down to their digitalization effort. So they say, you know, they've been ramping up, making sure that everyone is tech heavy making sure that all the members um, can be equipped with technology during this COVID 19 pandemic times. So that's one thing that they say that they've done right uh, during this pandemic. And I'm sure all businesses can concur that digitalization is the way forward. So that's one thing. Also, I think a large part of their success I guess is their overseas investment. Yes. So that's one thing that's being pointed out as compared to ASNB, EPF have a substantially larger overseas investment as compared to ASNB who is more dom- mainly more domestically invested. Mm-hmm. So, they said that um, 33% of their yeah, investment assets are outside of Malaysia, you know, across all assets class. So, that's mm-hmm. that. Since I guess international markets perform way better than Malaysia last year. So, naturally, EPF would have done better by having more exposure to global markets. You couple that with recovery, you know, throughout the second half of the year. So, I guess that's how the success came about and the good news came about for us, I guess. So, so yeah.
2: S- smart investing, basically.
1: Yeah. And what
0: would the impact be, if any, um, with such a high dividend payout to our economy?
1: In general, high dividend payout will trickle down to consumer spending and I guess in turn revive the economy. So we have programs like iCena, which allows you to take EPF, right? At first, for only affected people, now everyone can take out their money from EPF. And by taking out money from EPF, most likely they will spend it. So that will somehow trickle down to consumer spending as compared to during lockdown when people are scared for the economy, you know, people start saving, you know, and also Shops are closed. There's not much spending going on, so they also they save more in in anticipation of job uncertainty, and whatnot. So with money being taken out, uh, people having the confidence to take money out, you know, more consumer spending will spur economic activities, revive, rejuvenate the economy. So more money circulating, and hopefully, it will be better overall for the country.
0: Farhana, Malaysian Airlines is the latest carrier to incorporate the IATA Travel Pass into its own mobile app. The Malaysian flag carrier said that its mobile app's newest feature Digital Travel Health Pass will leverage IATA Travel Pass modules to help travelers navigate like the cumbersome document verification process after undergoing COVID-19 tests or vaccinations app users will be able to create a digital passport and upload details for authentication right um the digital travel health pass will enable travelers to determine eligibility for foreign travel and generate an okay to travel status i can't wait to get my okay to travel status (laughs) in your opinion do you think that the COVID-19 vaccine will be made mandatory
1: okay so so far no country have done it so no countries have made it mandatory for us to take the COVID-19 vaccine I think part of the reason being is that you know there will be passengers later you know who would likely who want to travel for medical or religious or you know personal issues who do not want to get vaccinated so who may choose to not get vaccinated as well I don't necessarily think that it should be made mandatory for people to get vaccinated and there will be this group who would want to travel who are not allowed to travel later because of this restriction because of this this travel pass so you know i think what's more important now is we need to work together to come up with standardized testing protocols i think that's more important as compared to you know getting vaccinated so we have been implementing making sure that people get tested you know a few weeks before before they travel um, making sure that they're negative throughout you know the traveling period you know and also ways to eliminate quarantine ways to open up borders getting vaccinated is an option, but I don't think it's necessarily the most important option at this point in time. That being said, things like vaccine passport or digital health pass, like you said, is an option that people can venture, but in terms of making it Mandatory. I think it would possibly do more harm than good. I feel. Do you
0: think that whilst a country like, for example, Malaysia would would not say to its people or the people here, it's mandatory, but could impose a mandatory, you know, vaccination in terms of visitors coming in? So basically, whilst people the countries may not impose it on their own people, if you wanted to go visit Malaysia or UK, whatever, those governments may say you have to have this iata pass with your, you know, okay to travel vaccine stamp in here?
1: I mean, like I said before, there are already institutions who would sort of make it mandatory to be vaccinated. For example, you know, workers or migrant workers, to a certain extent, they make it mandatory for people to get vaccinated to go to work. So that's an instance where it's it's mandatory. For travelling, I don't think that it's necessary at this point in time for us to make it mandatory to be vaccinated because there are already procedures right now being implemented in terms of you know making sure that they are tested negative before getting on the flight, making sure that they are quarantined before mm. before going out to the public. So there are already measures being put in place. I think in the long run, government could look into probably getting some sort of way for people to get vaccinated before they board on a flight. But I think making it mandatory would be i guess discriminatory for people who are just not going to be vaccinated at all so yeah now let's
2: move on and i'm pretty sure you've heard in the news already because we heard about the court order and then there were appeals by human rights groups and still over a thousand people were deported back to myanmar and myanmar currently have they're Mm. having a coup there's there's a lot of trouble Mm -hmm. over there Farhana, what is really going on here? There's
1: a lot to sort of, you know, uncover here. So Malaysia's deported over a thousand
0: people back to Myanmar, mm. defying a court order and appeals from human rights groups to halt the process. Now, rights organizations say the group includes some ethnic minorities that have suffered persecution in Myanmar. They say sending them back to Myanmar, where the army took power in a coup recently, could put them at an even greater risk. So why was it important for us to send back this marginalized group to me
1: It's not a question of importance I feel like I said you know we don't really know what goes on behind the scene so it might just be that the journey was planned beforehand or it might just be something involving money so we don't really know exactly what happened as far as we are concerned that you know the Myanmar Nationals were sent back despite a court ordered stay so that was puzzling because the court order was literally just a few hours of the deportation so
0: yeah so that begs the question of if you have a court order that says there is a case being heard on this No one go anywhere. You know, like you see in the movies, it's like, okay, you're not allowed to leave the country, give us your passport thanks. You've got a court order because we're having a case. How then did they get sent back? Like was there a breakdown in the system? Was there no communication between sort of the court and the groups? I mean, like what happened? Um, because I guess the court order was defied, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was definitely defied. And I think that's the main question that most people do not have the answer to and why right groups are asking them to investigate this matter. So Essentially, like I said, we don't know what goes on behind the scene and, and suddenly out of nowhere, you know, these Myanmar nationals are being sent back. So technically by right, um, you are not allowed to send back you know, refugees or asylum seekers. And in this case, there are a few ethnic minorities and even women and children being sent back, you know, unwillingly to a country where, you know, there are greater risks for them, you know, the country that is not necessarily a safe place for them to be at right now. By right, you know, it shouldn't happen, but it did. But again, it all boils down to how we've been, treating refugees and asylum seekers here in Malaysia, most of them are always in a state of limbo, not knowing when they will be deported, not knowing, you know, whether there is a law to protect them here. You know, we may not be a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention, but at the same time, I think there is a right and duty for us to protect these people as long as they're here.